<clears throat> I think to whatever extent that I'm faithful and gifted at my call as a pastor, at least part of that faithfulness and giftedness is connected to um, the way in which the Lord has given me a capacity to feel things um, pretty deeply, um, to enter into the suffering and difficulty of others, to um, embrace those things myself. But of course, that also means that one of the hard things for me about being a pastor is that I feel things deeply. That's part of who I am, who the Lord has made me to be. And so before I preach this morning, friends, I just want to be honest with you for all for a second that um, these past four or five weeks um, have been hard for me. Um, they've been difficult. I've been sad in all sorts of ways um, these past weeks, and it's, it's hard. And I just think it's important for me to acknowledge that to you um, as your minister, as your pastor, as your shepherd, not so that you can fix it for me somehow or make it better, um, but so that you can know how I'm doing um, and so that you can pray for me. Your prayers are so precious to me, friends. Um, when you pray for me, I feel it. The Lord uses it. And so that's what I'm asking for is that you would pray for me, um, even as I pray for you, um, so that you can pray that God's kindness and mercy and grace and renewing spirit would be at work in my heart and life um, in the weeks and months to come as I continue to process all um, that we've experienced in the last month or so. Friends, I too, like you, need Jesus to be my healer. You need to know that, um, that I stand in need of his ministry and kindness and healing just as much as you do. And now we come again to the place where we always come each Lord's Day, to the Word of God. It's a good place to be. Our sermon text this morning is Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 19, which is printed for you on the back of your order of worship if you'd like to look at it there. I invite you to listen now carefully once more, friends, as I read to you God's holy and inerrant word. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonargus, that is, sons of thunder, 
Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is, friend, absolutely true. And it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of all of our hearts may be pleasing in your sight. We ask this through and with and in our rock and our redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. A certain theologian who wrote centuries ago, he once said this, excuse me, he said, to those whom God is a father, the church must also be a mother. He then went on to say and explain that statement. He said, let us learn then from the church's title of mother how useful, nay, how necessary the knowledge of the church is, since there is no other means of entering into the spiritual life unless she conceives us in the womb and gives us birth, unless she nourishes us at her breasts, and in short, keeps us under her charge and government until we become like the angels. For our weakness does not permit us, he says, to leave the schoolhouse of the church until we have spent our whole lives as students within its walls. Moreover, he goes on to say, beyond the pale of the church, no forgiveness of sins, no salvation can be hoped for. Indeed, the paternal favor of God and the special evidence of spiritual life are confined to his peculiar people. And hence, the abandonment of the church is always fatal. Now, who wrote these words? It wasn't a Roman Catholic. It wasn't an Eastern Orthodox theologian. Now, these words of deep devotion and praise and conviction regarding the church, the institutional visible church, were penned by none other than John Calvin, the theological father of the Reformed Protestant tradition in which our own congregation stands. Our own Westminster Standards, the official theological documents of our church, puts it this way. The visible church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. The house and family of God, outside of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. That's what our standards say about the visible church, not the invisible church, the visible church that you see and experience Lord's Day by Lord's Day. In the context of our modern age, which almost exclusively emphasizes, as it does, the private and personal nature of religious belief and practice, um, these statements about the authority and necessity, absolute necessity of the church, as well as the danger of seeking salvation outside its walls, may sound strange. In modern America, active participation in the life of the church is often presented as a a kind of spiritual add-on, right? An extra bonus for religious people who enjoy that sort of thing and find it helpful 
for their life with God. But in the end, the assumption seems to be church isn't really that important. It's not really essential. In case you don't believe me, here's some evidence. Several years ago, in a survey put on by Ligonier Ministries, 58% of Americans agreed with this statement that worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. It's just the same. It doesn't matter if you go to church or you worship God on your own. 58%. And friends, that was before COVID-19, before the great cultural transformation we've experienced in the past several years. We all know men and women who would describe themselves as Christians but choose to neglect active participation in the life of an actual congregation, an actual portion of the visible church, people who call themselves Christians but don't find it necessary or essential to sit under the regular preaching of the word by a minister, Christians who don't think it is important or essential to receive the sacraments that have been entrusted only to the church, Christians who don't believe contributing their time or their resources, their money even to the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God is actually a fundamental part of what it means to follow Jesus. There are many around us who believe these things and live them out. But where did this odd and historically speaking inexplicable idea come from? That you can be a Christian and not be an active part, an active participant in the life of a local congregation. To answer that question fully would make, take more time than we have this morning, but at least part of the reason for that substantial error, and this is the reason I want to focus on, is a fundamental misunderstanding of Jesus' own intentions for what would take place after his resurrection and ascension. If you go into any bookstore and find your way to the religious section, you will soon come across any number of books which have this basic thesis, right? That, that the man named Jesus of Nazareth never wanted to start a formal religious movement or build an institutional church. But after his death, right, that old scoundrel Paul, uh, with his political and moral concerns, he came along and he hijacked what Jesus had tried to do. And he decided to invent formal Christianity, which led in turn to the Christian church. And the rest, as they say, is history. But to adopt this kind of thesis, this is what I want you to see this morning, to, to call yourself a follower of Jesus without seeing the church as necessary and essential is either willfully or naively to ignore a substantial portion of what we actually see in Jesus' life and teaching in the Gospels not least of which is found in our passage this morning. Take a look at our passage. In verses 7 to 12, we see a summary of Jesus' ministry that has become typical uh, for Mark's gospel. Jesus withdraws from Capernaum. He goes out to the sea. He's followed by great crowds, by men and women and children who are now going out to find him. They're coming from all kinds of places, from Galilee, from Judea, from Jerusalem, from places outside of Israel even, from Idumea, from cities beyond the Jordan, even, Mark says, as far away as Tyre and Sidon. You see, Jesus is no longer a 
sort of local celebrity at this point, he has gained what amounts, Marx wants us to see, an international, multi-ethnic, multi-racial following. All kinds of people from all kinds of places are being drawn to him. Eventually, Jesus withdraws from these people to the mountain. And here, in light of all those who are coming around him, he does something very specific and intentional. Listen again to how Mark describes what Jesus does in verses 13 to 15. In response to these great crowds that are coming from all these different places, all these different people, Jesus went up on the mountain, Mark says, and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Friends, Jesus' choice of a mountain for this action of appointing and calling um, the apostles is hardly accidental. It was at a mountain, you'll remember, that the people of God were first established after their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. That's where they became the people of God. And here Jesus constitutes the new people of God, which will be founded on his own person. But, but how does Jesus inaugurate the foundation of his kingdom there on the mountain? Does he do it simply on his own, individually praying, meditating, communing with God? No, Jesus chooses to build his kingdom and the people of God through men to whom he delegates his authority. That's what he does here. He chooses human beings just like us to build a visible institution called the church. Sinners like us, men whose faith we know wavered at times just as our, do, as our faith does. He knew these apostles were flawed men, and yet still he chose them. He did it on purpose. Mark tells us that Jesus called those whom he desired, and they came to him. Jesus summoned these men to him, and he did so with intentionality because he wanted to do it. And once he had these men gathered around him, Mark tells us that he appointed them. The Greek word that is translated appointed in this verse, is a, it's a strong word. It actually carries with it the, the connotations of made or even created. It is actually the same word that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis 1, where we read that God created, that he made the heavens and the earth. That's what Jesus was doing here. He was making these men into something new. So after he called these men, Jesus appointed them, he made them, he created them as the twelve. The twelve upon whom he would use, the twelve men whom he would use to build his church. Yes, Jesus himself would be the chief cornerstone, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2 and Peter in his epistle, but these twelve would be part of the foundation as well. And he gave them the name apostles, a Greek word that just means the sent ones. These would be the men that he would invite to be with him 
to walk with him, to know him, to abide with him, that he might then send them out into the world. And why would he do that? Why would he send them out into the world? Mark tells us in the second half of verse 14 and in 15, he would do it so that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Jesus called these men, he appointed them, and he cloaked them with his own authority. The authority to preach. The authority to cast out demons. The authority to do, in other words, exactly the same kinds of things that Jesus himself did in his own ministry. He sends the apostles out as his representatives into the world to make disciples on his behalf. This passage is fulfilled even more completely after the death and resurrection of Jesus in that, those verses at the end of Matthew when he gathers these men again on a mountain and then speaks to them right before he ascends to the Father's right hand. He says to the twelve, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Talk about himself there. But then he transitions. He says, because of that, you go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, right? I'm not going to do it myself in my own person. I'm going to send you to do it on my behalf, with my authority, with my presence. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them, preaching, that is, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. Now, why would Jesus gather men to himself and appoint them as apostles and give them authority to preach and to baptize and to cast out demons and to make disciples and to teach his commandments if he did not intend to build a church? And if participation in the institutional, visible church was not something that he understood to be central to the lives of all those who would follow him in the centuries to come. Why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus gather these men and send them out with this kind of authority? If his only purpose was to sort of set up individual phone lines um, to heaven for men and women... Um, who would eventually somehow come to trust in him, but do so in the privacy of their own hearts and homes, never gathering together, never actively submitting to the authority that he had entrusted to the apostles and to the church that he had built. Why would Jesus go through all this trouble if he had no interest in the concept of the church? The answer, of course, is that he wouldn't. If we take the person of Jesus seriously as he is actually revealed to us in the Gospels, we can only conclude that one of his central purposes, aside from the act of redemption and his death and resurrection, was to lay the foundation of a public and visible church that would continue his work after his ascension. And he did it by granting authority to human persons by the power of his own spirit. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 4, as we heard. He who descended is the one who ascended, that he might fill all things. And he gave, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Friends, my point this morning is simple. It's just this. Jesus of Nazareth established the church. Not John Calvin, not the Apostle Paul, not whomever else you might think. Jesus did it. He is the one who established the visible church, and he did it on purpose. He did it with deliberation, with forethought and intention. It was not a side project. It was one of his main purposes. It is not incidental to who he is or what he's about. The church was and is and always will be absolutely central to the purpose of Jesus' incarnation, life, death, and resurrection. And this means that we are, if we are to be faithful to Jesus, we must properly value the church that he built. Not only with our lips, but with our lives. Right? As Calvin put it so bluntly, to abandon the church is fatal, Calvin says, spiritually speaking. And to separate from the church is a denial of God and Christ. Why are we called to value the church? It's simple, really. If Jesus intended to do this, if he intended to set up the visible church, if he really did give to it apostles and pastors and teachers to bring it to maturity, then who are we to turn away from the means by which Christ has chosen to make himself known to the world? Now, now don't mishear me. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that salvation is impossible outside of the visible church. Our own Westminster Confession says... Outside of the visible church, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. That word ordinary is important. God is merciful. He at times does work in extraordinary or extraordinary ways. God can save us even when we rebel against him. But still, make no mistake, it is, friends, a serious and high-handed error and even sin if we turn away from the church, if we abandon the preaching of the word, if we desert the sacraments, if we deny the visible fellowship of the saints. It is. Yes, God may still save us if we choose to worship him only in the privacy of our own hearts and in the convenience of our own homes, but he will do so over and against our foolishness and our weakness. Friends, I know that I'm speaking in strong terms this morning, but I don't believe that it is unwarranted. I do so soberly and because I love you and out of pastoral care. One of my great concerns for modern American Christianity today is its lack of understanding about these things. It's lack of understanding regarding the, the intimate and essential connection between the authority of the visible church and the authority of Jesus Christ. Right? Viewed through the lens of history, if you look at the church through the ages, the apparent modern baseline of many Christians that active participation in the life of the church is an optional add-on. But what really counts is these privately held beliefs about the person of Jesus. If you look at that dynamic through the lens of history, this is not a quirk. This is not just immaturity. 
This is a dangerous and systematic betrayal of the teaching of Christ himself. That's what it is if we believe those things, if we live as though they were true. Friends, Jesus established the church, and he did it on purpose. And that means to those whom God is a father, the church must also be a mother, as Calvin says. But friends, our text this morning is not only a sobering reminder for us to properly value the church, our text is also a call for us to love the visible church and to see it for what it is. A gracious gift of God for us. The visible church is a comfort to us, friends. It's a way in which God loves us. It's a merciful thing that he has given us in the church. When Jesus left us, when he ascended to heaven after his death and resurrection, friends, he did not leave us alone to somehow figure out what it would be to follow him how we would mature into his likeness, how we would be sure of God's love for us. No, Jesus gave us apostles and he gave us pastors who, while not apostles themselves, continue in the ministry of the apostles in our world today. Jesus gave us the authoritative authoritative preaching of his word so that we would hear it and know it and, and come to understand all that he has commanded. He gave us the sacrament so that we would know that he is always with us even to the end of the age. He gave us the communion of saints. He gave us the great cloud of witnesses, which is to say, Jesus, friends, gave us, he gave you the church. And what a gift it is. And yes, one of the reasons Jesus gave you all these things and me is so that we would have to gather together every week with people that we're sometimes not sure that we even like that much. Right? People who are awkward sinners just like we are. We'd have to actually rub shoulders with them and bump elbows. In his wisdom, Jesus knew that would be good for us, that we would need it, that it would be part of keeping us humble that it would ground us in all kinds of right ways as we learn to mutually submit and learn from one another. Can you imagine how proud we would all become if we all had this sort of just purely individual personal relationship with Jesus? Friends, we need one another. We need this to protect us from ourselves. But that's not the only reason Jesus gave us the church. Jesus also gave us the church so that we would be certain of his love. That's why we do this every Lord's Day. We gather publicly together because he has given us the word and sacraments as real means of grace that we might be built up in our faith that we might even be made by the power of the Spirit like Him. And they're means of grace that we must receive from someone else. We can't do it all ourselves. He gives us all these things freely, friends. He gives us, our Lord Jesus, His church, not as an onerous burden, but as a gift for our good. 
The church, beloved, is a gift to you. It is imperfect, yes. This church is imperfect, yes. But still, the church around the world, the visible church, is a gift. This congregation is a gift. It is a sign of God's mercy and grace to your frailty and weakness that you might, in the end, be saved by the grace and mercy of God. Friends, Jesus established the church. He did it on purpose. And he did it because he loves you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the bride of Christ. We thank you for his body, the church. We pray, Father, that you would stir in each of us a love and an appreciation um, for this gift that you have given us through your Son. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.